BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, happy holidays, and thanks so much for making 2017 a great year for the uh, Bill Press Show. Of course, we're taking the week off, but we wanted to bring you some of our favorite interviews from 2017, along with some very special programming that I and our team have put together for all of you to enjoy during this Christmas holiday. We certainly hope 2017 was a big year of resistance for all of you, and we wish you a happy new year and promise we will keep the resistance alive with your help during 2018. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show. I am not Bill Press. My name is Peter Ogburn. I'm sitting in for Bill Press today as I've sat in for some of the segments all throughout this week where we are taking a look at the biggest stories from 2017 as we march towards the end of the year and the beginning of 2018. Of course, I can't do it alone. So we are talking today about the Me Too movement and the general terrible behavior by lots of men in the public eye. I am joined by the U.S. columnist for The Guardian, Lucia Graves. Hi, Lucia. Hi, Peter. Thanks for coming in. And also senior fellow at the Center for America Progress, Jocelyn Fry. Jocelyn, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Great to be here. This is, um, I, I often say this when I sit in this chair, I am hosting this segment, uh, not unlike the way that a donut surrounds an empty, vacuous hole with <laughs> wonderful goodness I have brought you two in to be the substance to today's show. Uh, and especially on a topic where, um, look, as a man, I'm going to kind of help lead this conversation, but I'm going to just shut up and listen because uh, I think that's been a problem for far too long when we talk about the Me Too movement. So let, let's start. Not at the beginning, beginning, but at the beginning of sort of the awakening and the of the of the reckoning here in this country. I think it was the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal that really sort of put everything on a much bigger map. Um, what? Let, let me just first of all ask ask both of you, Lucia. I'll start with you. Were you shocked? to read that this type of behavior happens in in a place like Hollywood. Because I wasn't, but I also, I was more amazed at the reaction that it started to get. No, I wasn't shocked. I mean, I was shocked by some of the particulars mm -hmm. of his mm -hmm. story. And, and you do sort of see these sort of individual patterns emerge with, with different men. You know, he had like a, a massage routine that was strange. And for other people, it's, um, for Charlie Rose, it's like a weird sort of flashing thing. And so I was surprised by the particulars, but not by the pattern. And I would actually say that, I mean, definitely when we started seeing fallout was in the wake of Weinstein, but even before that, um, the allegations against Trump the year before, I think, sort of set the stage for um, this kind of reporting to take place. 
Uh, you know, I, I want to talk about the Trump stuff for sure. We'll spend some time on it. But Jocelyn, these allegations came out against Donald Trump, and he still won. He still won the election. And, I mean, not just to women, but especially to women. That was a real blow to have to hear the voice of the President of the United States admit to sexual assault, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which we have. Right. So, I guess, what was the difference between Donald Trump admitting to sexual assault on tape that we all saw and heard versus the Harvey Weinstein story? Well, on some level, that's the million-dollar question. I I think part of what has happened, not exclusively with the president, but I think with political leaders, is that sometimes we're willing to put things in a box, right? Yeah. And we're willing to tolerate certain behavior, and um, in 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 and instead, you know, focus on the political. And I think that's one of the complexities here is that when you put this all in a political frame, there is a different perspective that people are willing to bring to the table. And even in the Roy Moore case, you saw people who I think, you know, knew in their hearts that this was just offensive conduct, but yet they were willing to put it aside because they were told, uh, you know, politics was more important. And I think that was part of what was going on in the presidential election. And it's, you know, it's not the first time that that's happened, and it probably won't be the last time. Um, I do think that part of what happened with Harvey Weinstein is that you saw um, sort of a full range of women coming forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and you saw somebody who was a, very, a celebrity figure, but not a political figure. And um, you saw somebody, uh, women sort of, you know, hundreds of women, um, you know, some famous names, but some that weren't famous names. And I think that that touched a nerve. Um, um, I think when you you could take it out of the politics and not, you know, have purely a political spin, that people looked at it slightly differently. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty spot on. And, and I also think that there's something pretty gr- as grotesque as this is. I mean, a lot of these uh, accusations and stories that we hear at this point are essentially one person's word versus another. And Donald Trump actually came back and said horrible things about the women that were accusing him of, 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 of these things. There was one woman that he got up on stage and insinuated that she wasn't attractive enough for him to sexually harass. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was all very disheartening. Um, and I think a part of it. That's, came- a, that, that, that's, a, that's a kind <laughs> way to put it. It was definitely disheartening. And, distur- you know, distressing. And it was part of a narrative throughout the campaign that I think many women and men found troubling that um, targeted not only women, but people of color and pe- different religious minorities. So I think that narrative was, you know, just has no place in, in the campaign. Let's let's park it on the politics for a moment because there are a lot I mean there are a lot of different aspects here um, and different sort of workforces that we're looking at when it turn, when it comes to, uh, to sexual harassment in the workplace or sexual assault in the workplace but with politics we've seen uh, many politicians get in trouble for this right uh, Al Franken has announced he's resigning Trent Franks had to go um, John Conyers, uh, said he was leaving. What is it going to take to see some real change with some of these men or some of these behaviors in in, in uh, politics? I think it's it's going to 
take attention, which is exactly what it has right now. I mean, this has been going on forever, for decades, you know, and, and the reason that it's coming out now is because the culture around what is considered appropriate has changed. Yeah. And that's been, uh, actually, it's extraordinary how much it's changed just in the last couple of years. And we've seen these these huge, um, these huge shifts, uh, not just around like the culture of women, but also um, gay rights, same-sex marriage is just the last couple of years, transgender rights has exploded. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement, like all of these, all of these movements sort of given visibility um, by social media, I think, and um, increased inten- attention, I think, around the presidential race as well, have just completely um, changed overnight. I was reporting on Trump accusers during the election, and I remember people saying to me, oh, well, you know, he's, he's a germaphobe, so he's not a rapist. And um, Jesus. Well, I think there's some, you know, it's the the one rape allegation that's really credible against him is from his first wife, Ivana, and and she's walked it back since she signed a non-disclosure agreement with him. But uh, it's it's a credible allegation. But 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 the notion behind what people were telling me was, if it wasn't rape, it didn't matter. And I th- right. think that until very recently, that was sort of the general consensus. And these were enlightened people I was talking to. These were smart, uh, I hate to say it, but woke people um, who should know better in a way. Um, but that, you know, during the presidential election, that was sort of the consensus. Well, did he did he rape women or not? OK, I, I want to ask you both about this, because there does seem to be a line now and as you point out, it was, well, he didn't rape anybody, so who cares? But the line has definitely gotten um, more aggressive in the sense that, like, there are some things that men should know that they cannot do in I mean, anywhere, but especially in the workforce. So what is that line? Because there, there are some that were, I mean, groping allegations, certain uh, things that you talk about at work that you shouldn't talk about around uh, the women that you work with. So what, I, I'm, I'm just, I, and it's probably different for everybody, so I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I mean, when we're talking about combating this type of behavior in the workforce, where is that line? Well, I think um, there, there are a couple things. There's the legal line, mm-hmm. right? The law is um, you know, pretty clear that when you talk about sexual harassment, you're talking about unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature that is either uh, interferes with your job, it creates a hostile working environment, um, or it's, it's something that's a condition of employment. That's the standard definition. And what that means in practice is that you can't you know, in, in engage in sort of sexual or sex-based conversation or touching or any sort of conduct that um, interferes with somebody's ability to do their job or they're told that it's a condition of your job or it creates a, a, a bad work environment. So that's the legal piece of it. I think what's complicated is that we've heard a range of conduct some of which falls under that definition and some of which doesn't. Sure. And a lot of it that we're hearing about um, publicly is in the political conduct context, where I think there may be an argument that you want a higher standard. 
um, so that it's not simply the pure legal definition, but do you expect public servants to, to behave better, right? Like it may be not sexual harassment if you, ta- you know, patted somebody on the butt once or something like that, but they shouldn't do that, right? And so, right, crazy, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. But I mean, but the, because of the way that the law works, right? So I, I think that that's part of the complexity here. And, and I think, you know, um, on some level, it, it should be common sense, right? Like, you, it, some of the stuff that we've heard, none of it should be expected to be acceptable. You shouldn't be able to sure. pat somebody in an uh, in a personal area. You shouldn't be able to say certain things. You shouldn't be able to suggest that if you don't do something um, uh, of a sexual nature, you're not going to get promoted. I mean, these are things that ought not to be confusing to people. Um, I think, you know, I agree with Lucia that part of what's happened is that because it's happened for years, that people have sort of thought, well, this is okay. It's the way things operate. Um, you know, I think the other piece that is important is that people focus on sexual harassment. They think it's about sex. And it's really about power. And so it's not, in that level, it's not surprising that you're hearing about these cases in political centers because it's a place where power reigns and mm-hmm. where people are used to leveraging, flexing their power um, and, um, and abusing power. Um, and so I think when we talk about how do you begin to combat it, you have to start thinking about how do you level the power structure? How do you empower victims so that they are not, um, the, ba- the balance of power is so uneven um, and that people have greater ability to push back? I mean, I think that's the dynamic. When we talk about the the political aspect of this, I think one of the things that really depressed me is reading all the stories about women who worked for one particularly terrible boss and put up with it and said something about it eventually and then nothing happened and then their only recourse at that point is to quit and leave and go somewhere else and start over again. Mm -hmm. And so to think of the number of people who might have had a bright career in what whatever field it's in, right? Politics or whatever, and then they got out of it because of somebody who was who was abusing their power in one way or another over them. Like that's pretty depressing. And that's something that like we talk about, but you're right. It it is so much about the focus is so much on the sexual harassment, sexual assault and what these people did because it's sort of salacious, I guess, for people to read about, but like it, it's an institutional thing about keeping people down, mm-hmm. keeping women down. Mm-hmm. Well, and also I think that so much of the time it's just not worth it to say anything. The the law is such a clunky tool for dealing with what is a very um, sort of nuanced space, and so I don't think it's a coincidence that so many um, so many of the people who've been harassed will just or assaulted will just leave rather than report it. Um, Sarah Wildman wrote uh, an account of her time at TNR um, where she talks about uh, how she was assaulted by the literary editor there, um, or forcibly kissed, um, to be precise. And I do think it's helpful to be uh, precise um, where we can be. And she said that um, reporting it was worse than the assault Mm -hmm. itself. Uh, and the, the, the sort of process that she went through there where she was like called into a room with him and he was like, it was consensual. And she was like, no, it wasn't. And then they just kind of called it a day. Um, and, you know, this man, uh, Leanne Wieselter, continue, continued to have all of the power in that situation. And so no wonder the best thing she did for herself, she said, was to tell 
um, some friends about it so that, you know, 10 or 15 years later when she wrote about it, uh, she had more than she said he said. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's um, her experience is not unusual. Um, You know, if you look at the data and what we know about sexual harassment, you know, as many as 70 percent of claims never go reported. And I do think part of the dynamic is that people don't want to go through the questioning, the belief that somehow they will be um, targeted where they'll be told, you know, they're lying or their lives will be scrutinized or what were their motives or why did you go with him on a date if you thought that the, I mean, like all those questions that people tend to raise immediately. And, um, you know, when you've gone through a traumatic experience, the last thing you want to go through is somebody um, questioning your motives and your behavior, Um, particularly when I think a lot of victims, you know, replay it in their minds themselves, and they and they question, did I do something? Was I wearing something? You know, our our knowledge and discussion about this issue is so flawed that we have all of these sorts of excuses that people use to justify or rationalize what is, you know, ultimately just illegal conduct um, yeah. and discrimination um, that is impermissible, and we don't do enough to teach people that. I, I mentioned, you know, a lot of these things came down to he said, she said, but it really is way bigger than that. And, and I think, you know, uh, no other case is that clear than like the Matt Lauer situation, right? Uh, because you look at the allegations that were made and you look at the fact that and everybody's kind of honed in on this, that he had a button under his desk where he could lock the door. Now, Matt Lauer did not go to Home Depot and get, I don't even know if you could buy those Home Depot, but get a, a, a like locking door system to put under his desk. There were people that installed that. And also, like, you know, these women have come forward and you, you essentially aren't going against one person. You've got all of these enablers. And that's just been cooked into the system this, this whole time. Well, I think, um, yes. I mean, that all of that, that story, when you hear about it, you're just... You think this is crazy? How could this possibly have happened? It's like super villain it, stuff. It, it is, and it's it's very disturbing. But I think it reinforces the reality that sexual harassment is really um, it's a structural barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is a, is a sort of perhaps an extreme example of how there were things in place that facilitated really bad behavior, but the truth of the matter is that even if you step outside that, you know, very high profile context and you just go to a fast food restaurant or a retail place, there there, there are lots of structural impediments, mm-hmm. um, whether it's uh, an HR person who's not receptive or just a process that doesn't work right, that make it hard for people to come forward. And as we think about how we um, pivot and, and do a reset and really try to improve the workplace going forward, those are the types of things that we need to be focused on. Mm. And it also gets at how much um, power plays into into these situations, but also how we have to look at them holistically. It's the people who are in a position to have a button in their office where they can close the door whenever they want. That's also um, part of the Weinstein's complicity machine story that came out where you see just kind of this like labyrinth of people under him sort of doing his bidding to cover this up. Um, it's incredible that he could have hundreds of allegations against him and have kept that quiet for so long that like great reporters like David Carr could not be able to report that story because he was that good at tamping it down and not just good, but enabled by 
um, like networks of of people who were on some level complicit. And I don't think that the law can ever actually catch up with that culture. You have to change the culture. Mm-hmm. You'll never you're, you'll never legislate that through Congress on down. Um, you can't do anything really, but talk about it and raise awareness about it and sort of make repercussions um, in the private sector, I guess, as well as, you know, address legislative fixes. But but the law will never catch up with all of this. Well, I think um, I, I completely agree. And it's why we have to I think your your term holistic is right. We have to understand the problem holistically, that it's not just about a legal fix or removing a person, that it is about a culture and a workplace and that you have to um, dig deep to really think through how do you actually repair that. And it's a combination of things, including, um, you know, I think particularly um, this is noteworthy in Congress, greater diversity at who's at the top. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the numbers of chiefs of staffs and top senior folks um, in the House and the Senate, they're not enough women. They're not enough people of color. And while that's not a panacea, I do think that, you know, creating sort of a more diverse group of folks at the top sometimes can um, help to disturb a culture that, um, uh, you know, preferences um, certain type of bad conduct. And I think that piece of the story has sort of gotten lost. Um, um, but is when you, again, think about reforms going forward, that's one of them, because that's that's also true in the private sector. There are not enough women at the top. When you talk about not enough women at the top, I'm reminded uh, that we, we played a clip from a candidate for Michigan State office. And she had an ad out. Her name is uh, Dana Nessel. And she put an ad that says, quote, who can you trust the most not to show you their penis in a professional shit setting? Is it the candidate who doesn't have a penis? I'd say so. And, well, it, I mean, it's she obviously did it for comedic effect, but it's also kind of like, you know, if we had more women in, in – if we elect more women to public office, like, yeah, this won't be as big of a problem. Except that it, it will. I mean, the to give you a sense of how deep this problem goes, mm. when I was reporting on, um, like, changes in Congress uh, to address this and sort of sexual harassment training in the House, um, I interviewed Brenda Walsh, who's, like, one of the leaders on this and who knows this issue and was one of the, like, people pushing for... Uh, mandatory sexual harassment training, which they now have, I believe, um, through the House Rules Committee. They were able finally, to finally get that. It's about time. And um, basically, as soon as that story broke, people in her office started coming forward and being like, "Actually, uh, I was sexually harassed or assaulted in that office," and she had to fire her chief of staff, which she eventually did. I think probably to her credit, if the allegations um, were credible, which it seems like they were. But like even sort of like the sort of paragons of leadership uh, are susceptible to this. And oh I'm, I'm the chief of staff was a man. So, I mean, yeah, it, it would maybe help <laughs> if it didn't have a penis. But, um. but, I think, but I think your point is well taken, that this is not solely about if you just have enough women in leadership, that that's sort of going to fix the problem. It's in, That's part of a solution. Sure. Um, but I do think um, it goes back to the earlier part of the conversation about changing a culture. 
Um, and, you know, women and men can get caught up in that culture and protecting that culture. I think the other thing we shouldn't lose sight of is not every sexual harassment claim is brought by a woman. But if you look at the data, 80% of the claims that we looked at a 10-year period between 2005 and 2015, and about 80% of the claims were filed by women. But that means about 20% were filed by men. Um, there's not enough data. Um, there are LGBTQ um, um, uh, claims out there that we don't have a good handle on. Um, so I think that we shouldn't we shouldn't get so focused on what we think the prototype harasser looks sure, like because sure. it can be very diverse. Well, and there was just that claim that, that came forward with uh, Blake Parenthold's office. It, um, a, a male staffer was sort of complaining about essentially what I think was locker room talk, sort of a, a sexually explicit joke about his fiance. Um, and how uncomfortable and sort of hostile that was, um, which that in itself, I think, is is a sea change in the culture. Trump's um, sort of conduct, or, there were two parts to the Trump story. There was the conduct itself, and then there was how he excused it, which was it was locker room yeah. talk, literally. Yeah. Uh, and that seemed to get that seemed to be his get out of jail free card. Um, and the fact that there are men now coming forward saying, essentially this was locker room talk and I wasn't okay with it. I'm not in that locker room. Um, that's, I think, sort of the next piece of this. Right, right. And I think it's a reminder that um, the only people who complain about it don't have to be the the victims themselves that are what we call a victim and who we think is offended can be a, a lot of different types of people. It may not solely be the person um, where that um, conversation or conduct is directed, it could be a coworker. It could be somebody who observes something or knows something that's happening. And I think for a lot of these cases where we've heard about the enablers, um, you know, now you've, I think, heard some stories where they say, you know, made me uncomfortable or whatever. And I think we have to um, create a culture where people feel comfortable, even if it's not targeting them personally, yeah. that they feel like they can come forward. So we, we've talked a lot about uh, you know, either entertainers or people, you know, re- relatively famous people or pe- members of Congress. I, I not only work on the show, but I also write about food for a couple of different publications. And the restaurant industry is dealing with a reckoning of their own. Um, John Besh, a pretty well-known chef in New Orleans, he has his own empire. Mario Batali, uh, there's another pastry chef relatively well-known in, in New York, Johnny Iannuzzi. They all have had to step down from their post for sexual assault or sexual harassment allegations. And one of the things that really struck me in at least two of those stories, some of the women that came forward that worked for these men said, we would have said something, but there was no HR department. And these are three men who have literally built empires within the restaurant world. And you don't even have an HR department. And I'm sure that that's the case for a lot of people, especially with small businesses and and things like that. So uh, not that I want to put anything else on on someone who feels like they've been a victim, but what are you supposed to do in that situation? Well, very often the most vulnerable workers can. I mean, you might have a green card. You might be vulnerable in all kinds of ways that where if you say anything, you can lose your job and – and, and or worse. So, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I mean, I think this this happens everywhere. And as with with everything, if you are um, sort of 
at the margins of society in other ways, you're, um, you have even fewer options for recourse. Well, and I, I mean, I agree. And I think it um, it's important to elevate those cases because it's where the bulk of the cases happen. Sure. Um, you know, I think to your 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 point that um, we've been so focused on the political and the high profile, we've lost sight of the fact that most of these cases are happening in low-wage sectors, service sectors, um, involving workers who are even more disempowered. And I, you know, I do think, you know, for me, I go back to what the law requires. The reality is that if you are an employer, um, you are obligated to do certain things, including telling people about their rights, having those things posted, and, you know, presumably having some information available to people if they want to um, um, uh, raise a, a discrimination charge. And I think what we're seeing is a flaw in that process, right? We should be we should be doing greater oversight and thinking about better ways to ensure that employers are actually abiding by those rules so that when people do have claims that they have the ability, at least in theory, to come forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other part is that, you know, we know um, from the data that the food service industry, the hospitality, hotels, um, retail, cashiers, those sort of service sector jobs are where the bulk of the claims um, of um, sexual harassment claims occur, but they do occur across all industries. Um, um, But I do think uh, it's a reminder that people are very isolated, right? Like we, I mean, even in these high profile cases, part of the reason that people didn't say anything is because they're sort of off by themselves. They're not, they don't have a big um, community of folks um, necessarily in the workplace um, where they could sort of bring their claims. And um, I think it speaks to the need for really rethinking how do you create a culture where people can come forward. Uh, I, I want to ask the two of you a, a, a somewhat controversial question because I think it's probably the least important part of, of this whole situation. But um, you mentioned repercussions that a lot of these men are seeing. Um, where does redemption fit in to this? Because you're seeing a lot of people uh, who are losing their jobs and will they or should they ever be allowed back into polite society? I'm thinking of Al Franken who originally sort of said I remember it differently. I thought it was a joke and now he's leaving. But and, and he also sort of gave a pretty weak apology when he was leaving uh, and denied uh, the allegations. But at, at what point is there any redemption for men, or, or should there be any at all? Yeah, I, I think people should absolutely be able to be rehabilitated. There's there's a huge sort of spectrum of um, of of what these allegations amount to. Um, Al Franken, I mean, I don't think that it, being a U.S. senator is a huge privilege and honor, and no one deserves that. Um, sure. So I I think that there are there that he will and should seek to rehabilitate himself in various ways. I, I don't think anyone deserves to be a U.S. senator, and you're held to a higher level of conduct, and that's appropriate. Um, it would also be helpful if he didn't continue to call the women liars. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to see um, a more sort of uh, earnest and uh, maybe honest response from him. Um, or just respectful, really. Sure. Um, 
Well, and I think there's a whole, um, you know, people talk about restorative justice and they talk about redemption. And I I, I absolutely agree. I think that's really critical. But I think um, um, you can't have redemption if you don't acknowledge what you did. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. You That's that's, you know, inherent to sort of redemption and sort of the, your sincerity with which you do it. Um, but I also think when once people do it, they own it and say, I did this. I did you know, didn't understand the impact, and they try to um, uh, repair, <laughs> um, you know, that's uh, that's something that can be powerful. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that the, the first step before you even go down that path is you have to, you know, admit that whether it was how you were brought up or the culture you came up in professionally, it was bad behavior. Ladies, I, we have to end it there because we're just out of time, but thank you, thank you so much. Columnist for The Guardian, Lucia Graves, and Senior Fellow, at the Center for American Progress, Jocelyn Fry. Thank you so very much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Folks, if you're watching, I appreciate it. I hope you're having a great holiday week. Remember to go check out our podcast. Just search for The Bill Price Show in iTunes and find us there. Download our podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show.